Welcome back, everybody. I'm your host, Greg McEwen, the author of two New York Times bestsellers, Essentialism and also Effortless. And I'm here with you today, coming from Cambridge, England, no less, to see if we can't make an even higher contribution together. Have you ever pursued or even achieved something only to feel unsatisfied? That you've given your energy, your effort to winning a game, but having won it, have questioned the whole experience? Today, we will continue with part two of the interview with Bill George. Bill is the former CEO and chairman of Medtronic. He's the Henry B. Arthur Fellow of Ethics at Harvard Business School. He's a businessman, he's an academic, he's a coach. He's the author of a new book, True North Emerging Leader. And by the end of this episode, you will be able to prevent yourself from winning the wrong game. Let's begin. Remember, if you want to learn faster, understand more deeply, and increase your influence, teach just one idea from this episode to someone else within the next 24 to 48 hours. This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. (coughs) Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments, and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify, because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One of the practices I have, if I've worked a lot with CEOs who come to our program at Harvard, 
people who've gone through various classes. And if I'm aware that somebody's having a difficult time, uh, you know, I'll reach out to them and say, Greg, uh, you know, you resigned from your job. Uh, let's talk about what comes next. How are you doing? And try to get together with them and go through that. Maybe they just retired from the job and they did well, or, you know, maybe they decide to change up. I don't know. And not everyone wants to do that. So I accept the fact that, that not everyone is open to that kind of discussion, but that I, uh, I, I, I offer myself to just be a listing board, a, a sounding board, and someone to listen and be there for them and to show some empathy. You know, I remember getting together with a, a good friend of mine, not close, but a good friend, whose wife had just been diagnosed stage four cancer. And I'd seen him one night and he was really angry. And I said, let's talk, you know, this has got to be tough for you in addition to your wife. And, you know, and so we had a very upfront, honest conversation. I don't know how he took that, but I think he appreciated the fact that I reached out to him, was there for him in a very hard time. So you're saying that when you notice this, it sounds like when you're in person with people and you notice it, but it sounds maybe that it's even beyond that. If you're reading about a story in the media and you happen to have a connection, even if it's a light connection with somebody, you'll make a point of actually getting their number, calling them, saying, look, I'm listening. I'm here to listen. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And they may not want that. That's okay. I just back away. And sometimes I feel like, uh, you know, people lose their jobs, Greg, you've seen this happen, and maybe it wasn't their fault. And so they just need someone to talk it through. Maybe they're angry. Maybe they feel they're mistreated. They just need someone they can talk to, you know? I mean, bad things happen to good people, and it took me a while to figure out, you know, it's not good things happen to good people, and, you know, there's a lot of unfairness in life. So, uh you know, but maybe it was the right thing for the long term. Maybe they're going to wind up happier somewhere else or people going through, say, a divorce. Maybe it'll wind up better after that, but you need someone you can talk to. Mm -hmm. This is like a golden thread through our conversation so far is, is the, the need for space to think, but also the role of interpersonal communication in providing a way to think. Because it's not just independent work. We've talked about the importance of that and the, 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 the gap in our habits around that. But beyond that, we have to figure out a place to talk with each other so that we can work out what we think below the surface, so that we can start to unpack all of that meaning and all that messiness inside of us and actually come to clarity and that's what your group seems to have created. Let me ask you another question about that. What changes have you seen in the questions discussed over the 50 years? Ha, huh. we say, we, we just kind of a joke, Greg, but we say the questions, we keep coming back to a lot of the same questions. The questions haven't changed, but the answers do. Mm. So oftentimes our perspective on life, what would you like for the latter 30 years of your life. When do you plan to retire? What do you plan to do? And a lot of times you're in real time with those. Or what, what do you want to leave behind? What's the difference you're trying to make in the world? How do you see that? When do you need to have courage? And I think there are many, many forms. So the questions are really important. But like I say, the answers uh, will change over time as we gain more life experiences. And it's in sharing those experiences. So and I do the same thing with all the people I work with. You, I gain, you know, I gain richness and intimacy and trust and knowledge of people 
through that kind of discussion. I don't gain a lot by, you know, someone talking about, you know, how the sports team did last week or the, you know, their golf score or anything like that or superficial things. So one of my weaknesses, I'm not very good at superficial conversations, but I gain a lot from having, hey, let's, I love to go on hikes, climbing mountains. Let's talk, you know, just tell me more about yourself. And so, boy, I find that's where the richness in life, my life is and has been for a long time because, uh, you know, my purpose, my North Star is to uh, help people reach their full potential. So I've always wanted to do that since I was in college mm-hmm. and uh, I still want mm-hmm. to do it. So I'm no genius at medical technology at Medtronic or about any company, you know, or even or about leadership. I'm just uh, trying to learn. And I think one of the keys to continuing humanity is to figure you every situation you're in, you can learn. What you just told me is that the questions have stayed the same, but the answers have changed as you've grown older together with this group. What has the shift in answers been? Well, in a word, it's wisdom, but it's, my other word might be perspective having a different perspective. Uh, I've been with people earlier in life that lost their jobs and they had pretty good rationale about why they did. And now I would say people are much more thoughtful about what did I do to cause that? Mm. Uh, what, what, was, what was my impact on that fact? Maybe I was in the wrong place and I really wanted this promotion. I really wanted this job and this person took advantage of me or, you know, I got cheated by my boss, you know, and it was unfair. And one of the most best guys in our group went through that. And yeah, we all empathize with him about the person that did him in. But, you know, then he realized he was in the wrong place and he was causing it. And I think a lot of people don't realize how much they're causing the problems they have. Do you you know what is in my mind right now about this? I was going to ask you, like, what is the most powerful question that you have come back to again and again in the group? And I do want your answer to that question. But as I was thinking of that question, I thought maybe it's not really about that. Maybe it's more like this, that all of us and everyone in this team of people that you've met with all these years want to talk about what's most important and essential and honest within themselves, that there is a natural deep hunger to share that, you know, to be seen, to be heard, to feel that our experience in life matters to someone. So actually there's an eagerness to do that, but that there are other restraining functions that push against that desire and make it, make it harder for us to share those things or to feel safe to share them. And so it's almost like the questions matter less than might be obvious, because really it's just an openness. Let's just talk. Let's just talk about how you're doing, what's going on, and how we feel about the world. And that that's more important than the precise question you're asked. What are your thoughts about that? I think that's extremely perceptive. Um, what I find is, you know, I interviewed 220 people over the years for my series of True North books. And uh, I found everyone wants to tell you who they are. They really want to tell you, let me tell you about my life, my experiences. But what they're fearful of is if I told you 
the things I did, you might you might judge me. If I told you this didn't go my way, you might think less of me. And when they find that you're really open to that, that's where we connect. So we don't connect at the head with how great we are. We don't connect with the smartest person in the room, Greg. We connect at the heart. That's why Thich Nhat Hanh taught me the longest journey I'll ever take is the 18 inch of your head to your heart. People want to open up their hearts, but they also have protection around their hearts, like the rib cage. You know, they yeah. have protection for being hurt. And rejection is hurt. And I've been rejected, and that hurts. And so you have to get to the point where, you know, I had one woman in the book, it's just amazing, Beth Ford, who was the first openly gay uh, female CEO. And she said, you know, Bill, I go out and work with Iowa farmers, Southern Minnesota farmers. They own my company, actually. It's a co-op. And I show up as the CEO. I don't show up as the female CEO. I don't show up as the gay CEO. And if you have a problem with that, that's your problem, not mine, because that's who I am. Now, there's a woman that knows herself, that has the self-confidence. She doesn't have to hide in some closet or pretend to be something different than she is. She didn't have to pretend more masculine than the other women. I mean, than the other than the men. She can be who she is. She doesn't have to modify because she has a really good acceptance of herself, and that comes out of you know a high level of self awareness. And I think that's a rich quality. But it takes us a while to get there. It took me a while to get there to feel like if I'm vulnerable and I share my mistakes with you, will you think less of me? No, you might actually think more. And by the way, then, uh, you know, you can see these mistakes I'm making, but if I share with you I'm doing that, then I've got the power, not you. This idea that we want to share, but there's something in the way, it, it just, I've just been thinking a lot about this recently, that it's almost like there's a communication wall between all of us. And if you had to name it, it would be something like agree, disagree, as if Every interaction we ever have with someone, we have that filter. Uh, do I agree with what they're saying? Do I disagree with what they're saying? And I mean, even people listening to this right now can test what I'm saying by saying, well, are you listening? Saying, well, do I agree with that or do I disagree with that? I mean, it's like everywhere and it's so everywhere. I hypothesize that people don't even know they're making a choice when they filter what everyone else is saying through that lens. They're just... That's just what, like, that's what listening is, or that's what conversations are. But I've tried to express this this way, that I believe there is a space between agreeing and disagreeing. I like that language. There's a space between it. And in that space is our ability to understand each other, you know, the space to understand. And there's so many forces at play trying to reduce that space. Yeah, that you could be highly emotional because you're angry about something, or you somebody else could say something that you so disagree with or so threatened by, you suddenly freeze up, and and whatever space used to exist is suddenly gone. Uh, that the wall is back, you know, closed. It reminds me of that extraordinary speech given by Reagan when he goes to the Berlin Wall, and uh, you know, Mr. Gorbachev, if you seek peace. If you truly seek freedom, come to this gate, come to this wall, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Like that, the spirit of that, that we need to somehow tear down the walls so that we can maintain a space where we don't have to agree with the other person, but we don't have to sit around disagreeing either. We can just 
hold the space of understanding and how transformative that seems to be. That's what I'm thinking about as I'm hearing what you're sharing and as I'm thinking about this group that has invested for 50 years. Your thoughts? Think about how many people in your life, everyone in this call should listen, how many people in your life do you have that you can share the deepest secret to your heart, the yearnings, the concerns, the fears? Uh, There are not that many people, but having people like that in your life is invaluable. And we started out talking about Mark Zuckerberg. My fear is he doesn't have people like that now. We all need people. Of course, I told you I have my wife, I have my men's group. I've got a lot of close friends. But the more I can open up, the more they open up with me. And that's where the bonding becomes. But without that, life can be very lonely, very lonely. And we're all going to hit difficult times. You don't go through life without that. And wouldn't it be a tragedy if we did go through life without doing that? I, I keep thinking about the difference between spending and investing. Spending and investing, of course, in money, we could talk all about that. But also spending and investing time also spending or investing effort, what's the return on our effort. But then this final area, whether we spend or invest in our relationships. And and it's a little at the edge of my understanding or precision right now, but, but I think we can interact with people in a way that we sort of spend relationships. You know, if we're, if we're constantly just asking for what we want, if we're treating people as things, just transactionally interacting with them as we go along, thinking of people only when we need something, right? That would be spending the relationships, I suppose. And investing in the relationships is something, something close to the opposite. Reaching out to somebody because you're thinking about them, just, hey, I was thinking about you today, the text, the, the, the email, the phone call. How can I help the, doing what Adam Grant explain to me about the five-minute favor. How can you do something that really just is an investment, not for what you're going to get, not, not quid quo pro, but just investing in it? It seems to me that this men's group specifically that I keep coming back to is an exercise in decades of investing in each other. Does that sound right? Absolutely. But in just the men's group, you have to invest in a lot of relationships or they won't be there. That's what I'm trying to say. And you invest in them when things are going well. You don't wait until things are going poorly. You invest in them all the time and building those relationships. And people know that you've been there for them when things aren't going well. They'll be there for you when things aren't going well. And they'll feel a certain bonding, a connection, if you will. And that's what's critical. Adam Grant, in his book, Givers and Takers, says, you know, you're either a giver or a taker. Well, no one's comfortable dealing with takers. No one wants to be taken advantage of. I certainly don't. Uh, uh, And so you want to have a a source of mutual giving. We give to each other. I mean, that's what we do in marriage. That's what we do in relationships with family members. But it should be that way with friends. It should be that way with work colleagues. And honestly, it should be that way with everyone we come in contact with. No one wants to be around people that are just there for themselves. And yet sometimes we can create that dynamic without really meaning to, uh, that we just get so interested in our own agenda that we're not thinking proactively about how we can create that value for other people. What have you learned about how to develop a broader network of people that you're investing in? You know, beyond 
beyond just keeping it in your head, okay, here are some of the people I'd like to reach out to. Have you formalized that in any way? Well, I, I, I try to keep in touch with as many people that have come through my classes as possible. I, I ask them to reach out to me when they'd like to talk because I am not chasing them, but I'd like to develop as broadly a relationship. And I think like to think there are a lot of people with whom I can have intimate discussions as opposed to superficial conversations. I told you I'm not very good at superficial conversations. So I'd like to think <laughs> I can relate to it. A, a lot of people with whom I can do that. And I keep trying to broaden that network. And I feel guilty when I lose touch of some of my high school friends or college friends and, you know, try to renew. And I'm not as good at that as I'd like to. I keep trying, but, you know, it's uh, just, it can become overwhelming and you don't want it to become overwhelmed either. Uh, because I think, you know, it, all relationships have to be a two-way street. So I believe in mentoring other people, but I believe they're mentoring me too. I have a co-author in my book, Zach Clayton, who's 37 years old. And I feel like it's reverse mentoring. I've learned a lot more from Zach than he's learned from me. He taught me about social media. He taught me about a lot about how millennials think and where their hearts are and what's going on in their lives now. And, uh, you know, if you talk to him on this program, he'd say he's a work in progress. He's continuing to grow, but aren't we all? A lot of the work you're doing sounds to me like you're coaching senior leaders, either in sessions and class sessions that you're doing or one-on-one -on -one conversations. If you take the totality of the years you've done that, both the CEO of Medtronic or all of the years since then and before, if you take all of that, what would you say is the single biggest mistake you see CEOs or senior leaders make? The single biggest. Getting caught up in the external uh, gratification that often comes to people in high-level positions, you know, whether it's making your numbers or whether it's, uh, you know, it's getting support from the media or thinking, I always told people, you know, if your self-worth, if your self-worth is based on your net worth, you know, you're in trouble when you start getting caught up in the external gratification that's out there. And you see that happening with very successful people. You know, I think uh, people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are on the verge of that. But we also all get tempted to do it ourselves. There was a time I thought my goal was to be CEO of Honeywell. And then I realized one day I wasn't happy doing that. And I didn't even want the job. And that's when I went to Medtronic. Because, uh, you know, I had to look at was I really being getting the, the gratification and satisfaction at a deeper level of a business I loved. And it turned out it wasn't. Yeah. Do I want what I really want? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or am I just looking for it to say, oh, I'm a CEO of a big company or I'm, you know, I'm this or I'm that, you know, I've got a big house or whatever it is. All those external measures of success, which I think are very, they're very fleeting. You know, when you get diagnosed with cancer, you know, my, like my wife was 25 years ago, her number one question is not, I'm going to live, but does my life really matter? Does, mm -hmm. And that's a question we ask ourselves all the time. Mm -hmm. Does my life matter? To whom? Am I making a difference? You know, I've only got one life to live. Am I making a difference while I'm here on this earth? And I'd like to think that at the end of the day, maybe I've made a difference in a few people's lives in a positive way, some of whom I've never even met. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. No, that's, a, that's a, a beautiful way of putting that. Bill, I have a question for you. This is, this is a tricky one. When we were together at the Kennedy School, 
there was a leader there, and I'm not going to say who they are, but they were presented, and maybe accurately, as a global leader, a world beater, a famous world executive. Now, that may all be true, but there was a point at which somebody asked a question. They said, how have you navigated the work-life balance? And their answer was so, I mean, it was honest. So you certainly got to give them that. But I thought it was, it was more than just honest. And I, and I wanted your reaction. They said, oh, I, I, I haven't done balance. For 20 years, if something came up at the end of the day, if some emergency was happening at work, I would just call. I would just call up my spouse and just say, I'm not going to be home for dinner. Hang up the phone and hit the issue at hand. And then they said, and that's how it is. In our company, we all bleed blue. All of us do. That's how it is for everybody. And then they said, for example, if I email my assistant at two in the morning, she responds by 2.20. If, I, if it's three o'clock, by 3.20. And then, and this was perhaps the more, most interesting moment of all for me, pointed to the back of the room and said, isn't that right? <laughs> and all 50 people in the room turned around to see a slightly bemused, not entirely embarrassed uh, assistant who's sitting there. Well, what, what, what else is she going to say? I mean, she's, yes, you know, she's feeling, she's going to capitulate to that, whatever she thinks. But I just wanted to bring that. I've always been in my mind because we as a group of leaders in the room talked about that afterwards, that moment. And I really wish we'd talked about it more with the CEO who had just shared it uh, or with you afterwards. But we never, I don't think, did that. And so now I'm bringing it to you in this forum. What do you hear when you hear that story? I mean, this is someone that's being held up as a great leader, a great global executive, and yet you have a story like that, that that shows a contrast and contradiction or or the inherent trade-offs maybe in, in excellence in one area of life. What are your reactions to it? Makes me sad. I know the person you're talking about. They were quite devoted to their family, but they got caught yes. up in the role of the CEO. Yes. And uh, that's what's sad is we put people in these roles and you have these expectations that are totally unrealistic. Totally. And I think we have to get over that. That's interesting. So do you remember it enough that at the time you had a reaction to it? I sure noticed the way everyone in the class was reacting. It made me sad <laughs> because I had invited this person to come, and uh, it made me quite sad that this was happening. Uh, but I think also some of the people there didn't have enough empathy for the pressures on people yes. in leadership roles to yes. have walked in their shoes, too. And I think a lot of people are well-intentioned, and they get caught up in the pressures of the moment. And it doesn't go well. And I, I, that's what makes me sad. Mm. And I think our society has to change to not put these expectations on people. And I think we as people can't let them put them on us. We just have to be who we are. And like I told you, I coached soccer for 12 years, you know, while I was executive vice president of Honeywell and CEO of Medtronic. Well, that took time away from work, but I sure am glad I did. I look back to those days with great joy. My sons were on those teams, too. That's not the only reason I did it, but it was a time of great joy. Mm. Well, you formalized it in your routine. It's not a question of can I be there or not. The commitment is there. It's on the schedule. There are people waiting for me. So even if there's pressures at work, I'm still going to be there. But I really liked your answer 
overall, because in a way, what you just did is, again, create that space for understanding. Because it was easy as a participant in that moment when they shared this honestly, right? Maybe maybe the other, other leaders make the same trade-offs, but wouldn't be as honest about it. You know, yeah. so there's something to be said for just being honest and being open. It, it was easy, I suppose, not in that role to go, well, I mean, look at that. And it's like, yeah, look at that. I have never been in that role. No one else in the room had been in that role. It's a, it's a massively demanding, challenging role. And this is what, you know, this is how they navigated it. And they're willing to share it with us now. The idea of the CEO having empathy looking down, let's say, is important. But so I think is empathy looking up. Mm -hmm. I think about this in, in a political sense, too, sometimes, where whether it's the prime minister in England or the president of the United States, my general view is to extend far more compassion and empathy than I see certainly anyone in social media doing, but even just in casual conversation, that we allow for the impossible task that we're giving to these people. Whether If you're the prime minister or the president today or in any day, your job is impossible. It's actually impossible. Like, how can you, the, the, the complexity is so much greater than any single person could possibly comprehend or handle. And yet somehow we think nothing of it to say, oh, well, they're just so, so terrible. They're so this, or they're so bad. Or they're so... And it's like, <laughs> if you put you or me or anyone in that role, the same can be said because it's, it's so challenging in a world that's this complex and interrelated. Yeah, what's your reaction to that? Whether I'm teaching a case for the protagonist, or people want to judge or have a guest who comes to talk to them, don't judge that person. Ask yourself, what can I learn from that? And could this happen to me? Don't think that, oh man, I'd never do that. Well, you might find yourself getting so caught up that you would. So you really have to ask yourself those hard questions. So take it inside yourself. Look yourself in the mirror. Could this happen? Maybe there's another variation. I wouldn't do A, but I might do B. Could this happen to me is, is such an important question. And sometimes I think I'm just not realistic about what I believe I would do in some circumstances. I was um, Jordan Peterson has made this observation that, that most of us are self-congratulatory when we think about what we would have done you know, in a Nazi Germany, you know, yeah. how, we, how we would have behaved. I mean, we, we just love effortlessly saying, oh, yes, I would have been, you know, I'd have been the Schindler. I would have been the person to, to help, uh, you know, my ancestry is Jewish. And it's easy to believe that that's how I would behave. But what he observes is that statistically, that's not what would have happened, right? Almost everybody capitulated. A very, very small number of people actually were willing to take personal risk to help other people who were in a devastating but suddenly socially toxic situation. And so I think that's a more dramatic example of, of the same idea of like, could it be me? Could, could I be that way? It's very easy to get caught up in going along with the masses. And who's going to be the person that 
stands up against that. But it's it's pretty easy to get caught. I think we need to have some empathy for people that get caught up. And uh, so that, you know, that's why you build uh, support teams around you so you can do that. Bill George with the new book, True North, the Emerging Leader Edition. He takes the ideas that he's developed over these many, many years, decades of self-reflection and working with leaders all over the world and, and connects it, combines it with Zach Clayton to be able to say, well, what does leading authentically mean in today's workplace, in today's world, in this environment, this challenging scenario? And I suppose it would be fair to say, Bill, wouldn't it, that no matter what the problem in life is, leadership is the answer. And so in that spirit, this is so timely, so helpful, so useful. Thank you for being a coach to the rest of us and helping us to reflect on being a better leader ourselves and self-leadership so that we can lead other people better. Thank you. I mean, I wrote that chapter called The Leader is Coach because I think leaders need to think more like Bill Campbell and be coaches of people, not judges. Bill, thank you for being on the podcast with me today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it a lot. Is there anyone in your life you care enough about to make sure that you and they are not winning at the wrong game? I want you to think about who that person is. What is one idea from this podcast that you can share with them so that you can continue the conversation that we've started here with Bill into your life, into your relationships? Remember to subscribe to this podcast. And also, if you have found value in this episode, please write a review on Apple Podcasts. For the first three people who do it, you will get access to the Essentialism Academy. For more details, go to essentialism.com forward slash podcast promo. And together, let's avoid this number one error that leaders make. Until next time. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.